Today's Tribcast is brought to you by Raptor Technologies, the gold standard in school safety. Raptor Technologies is trusted by 80% of Texas schools. Safer schools, better Texas. Visit www.raptortech.com to learn more. And PepsiCo. PepsiCo is proud to introduce Pep Plus, our strategic end-to-end transformation with sustainability at the center of how we will create growth and value by inspiring positive change for the planet and people. More at pepsico.com slash pepsico positive. See some of MSNBC's biggest names at the Texas Tribune Festival. TripFest, happening virtually September 20th through the 25th, will feature a star-studded slate of MSNBC anchors and correspondents. Explore the TripFest program and grab tickets at trib-fest-dot.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 15th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And I am here with an exciting, special, very special episode of the Texas Tribune. Monday, uh, the Tribcast, I mean. Monday marks the beginning of the third and hopefully the last special session of the Texas legislature this year. And this time the main focus will be on something uh, all the dorks in this podcast have been waiting for anxiously for months and years. Uh, that, that thing would be redistricting, and we're going to spend the whole pa- podcast talking about it today. Um, but first, I guess I need to introduce these uh, aforementioned dorks. Uh, uh, I include myself on that list, by the way, before, before you all get angry. Um, joining us today are Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. <laughs> you know it's true. Uh, demographics reporter Alexa Uda. Hello. I can't believe you you would set us up for the expectation of only a third special session and not a potential fourth one. I'm sorry. Come See, on. you know, I, I'm a well-known uh, news god atheist. I do not believe in the news gods, and they will uh, I, I will tempt them as much as I need to. And uh, and last but not least, politics reporter James Batagon. Hello. Hey, James. Hi. Happy His- Hispanic Heritage Month, everyone. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. All right, so let's get into this. Um, on the docket um, for redistricting this special session are district lines for Congress, the Texas House, the Texas Senate, and the State Board of Education. Uh, Republican lawmakers are in charge of this process, and they'll have two new congressional districts to add, and we assume they will also try to maintain their dominance of state politics in a time in which, you know, over the past decade, it has trended blue, uh, relatively speaking, and when people of color represented 95% of the growth in the state. Uh, Ross, I'm going to start with you because you are the person on this podcast who was here at the Tribune the last time this redistricting process happened. Oh, I thought that was going to go in a different direction. Okay. Well, where do you think we were going? <laughs> we were going back to Jurassic period. Yeah, just a bit farther in time. You think you thought it was going to be meaner? I, I figured, <laughs> we're already off to such a great start. I wanted to, you know, try to <laughs> not, not Not Ross's first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ross, if you're still with us, can you uh, can you walk us through just a little bit briefly about how this process, what this process looks like in the Texas legislature? I can barely keep my energy up at this age, but I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> you know, there um, there's really only 10 or 12 people that are going to be deeply, deeply involved in the legislature in the whole map. And everybody else is just going to be fighting about their own district or their own um, area of the state. Um and I think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, Democrats, for example, most of their hopes aren't on the legislature at all. Most of their hopes are on lawyers in the courts. And so we're going to go through this exercise. If you're an optimist, and I'm kind of with you, Matthew, I think they can do this in 30 days. But if they can't, if they can do it in 60 days, you know, the, the legislative piece of this is relatively fast. And they're going to draw maps, and then we're going to go to court. And the court fight lasts a long, long time. And there are a couple of variables here this time that I think are going to be really interesting. One of them is that depending on whether Congress can do it or not, Congress is talking about amending the Federal Voting Rights Act. And if Democrats get their way, they would amend it in a way that required federal approval for um, Texas plans before those plans can take effect. That's called uh, pre-clearance. And um, if Texas gets pre-clearance, then the Democrats have a little bit of an edge. They don't have any edge in the legislature. They don't have any numbers. Uh, things look bad for them. Uh, but the other thing is that even without an amendment to the Voting Rights Act, the Texas Democrats, who are clearly going to get stomped in the Capitol, have the courts. And if the courts come their way, you know, sometimes you get some redrawing there. I think the immediate problems are going to be, are we delaying the primaries? I would bet that we are. You know, the longer it takes to get maps, the longer it takes. You can't declare for an office that doesn't exist yet. So you have to get a map first. We delay the filing period. We delay the primary and the runoff. And that's good for challengers and dangerous for incumbents. Um, this is how Ted Cruz beat David Dewhurst last time around. Um, and then we go into protracted court fights. So we're going to get some maps out of the legislature. They may or may not hold for this first election in 2022. Um, the courts will say something, and sometimes they throw out a whole map, and sometimes they throw out part of it. Every once in a while, that requires an extra election. But by this time next year, we should be sort of cruising along with what are probably, for the most part, the maps for the next decade. I expect those to favor Republicans. So we, I think there's a lot to talk about with the court battles and, and potential on this, but I want to talk first just a little bit about, you know, the work that goes into drawing these maps, and then we can talk about the work that goes in court about what what happens after this. And I mean, of course, the, those two things are very related, and it's hard to talk about one without the other. But Alexa, you are, um, you know, you know a lot about kind of the rules that the map makers are going to have to deal with here in order to, you know, as they as they do this and try to accomplish their goals. I mean, one thing I think we should say up front, right, is the the uh, the idea behind redistricting is is about representation. It's about, you know, ideally kind of drawing the ideal maps for people to be represented in Congress. Um, but this is a political process. It's a political process in a lot of places. It has long been a political process in Texas. And really what we are, um, uh, are seeing here is is, you know, when you put this in the hand of pol hands of politicians, you see l lawmakers trying to entrench and 
grow to the extent possible their political advantages in the state. But of course, there are kind of guardrails that that go into this. And Alexa, can you talk a little bit about just kind of what they kind of what kind of things they need to check off legally in order for them to be able to produce maps that, you know, would, in, in theory, hold up in court? Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about a, a knowledge of the rules, which I'm just going to use to sort of set up to say that there have been safeguards and rules in place to avoid the discrimination against voters of color for many decades, right, since the passage of the Federal Voting Rights Act in 1965. And But we should point out that state lawmakers since 1970 have passed one or more redistricting plans that were declared unconstitutional or in violation of the Federal Voting Rights Act, right? So the state does not have a great track record here. And I think what what you need to think about when you think about redistricting is that it's ultimately about power. And the people drawing the maps have both the power to keep themselves in power. Um, and it's really hard to get people to let go a little bit of that power, right? Like we've That's sort of the history of uh, voting rights litigation, that it's pretty hard to convince people to give up just even an, a little bit of that. You know, we saw that in the last cycle in places like Dallas County, where Republicans really wanted to get a larger number of seats. They drew the districts in with thin margins uh, to give themselves a majority, even though that county was mostly Democratic for, for a while. And that gerrymander fell apart by the end of the decade. They only hold on to two seats in that county when they used to have a majority of them. So, I mean, as we as we go through the process, basically they have all this data. They're going to load it up into Red Apple, which is the program the state uses to, to draw these maps. And what they're trying to do is they're both trying to equalize population across districts that are very, very uneven in population now so that they're close to equal in terms of the legislative ones and basically equal in terms of the congressional ones. They have to follow things like uh, making sure that districts um, are all all parts of the district are attached, right? You don't have like a stranded community that's not attached to the rest of the district. Um, they have to, in theory, respect things like political boundaries so that you're, if there's a city, so that you're not splitting it up based on the city limits for you know, no reason. Things like communities of interest so that you group together voters who have a sh- have shared political interests. So think of things like people living on the coast who want to be able to advocate for federal programs that benefit, um, you know, protections from hurricanes, for example. And so these are all the sorts of things that they have to consider. Obviously, at the same time, they cannot discriminate against people of color. That's both in the Constitution and in the Federal Voting Rights Act. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty complex process, right? Like communities don't exist in neat shapes, uh, in neat lines or on grids. If you are advocating for an opportunity district that's majority Hispanic, um, you can actually use race to some extent in drawing up that district. But if you cross the line, it's the line that you cross and lawmakers have crossed it intentionally before can be pretty thin. Um, and then, of course, in Texas, it's pretty hard to separate race from political affiliation. Right. So if you have a Republican majority drawing districts to in a way that they purport is meant to advance their political motives, right, to keep their majorities or even widen their majorities, because you can't really separate race from political affiliation in Texas, and because 
that dividing line is between voters of color and white people, uh, you could end up drawing lines that even though you say that they are meant to be political, end up being discriminatory. And so, I mean, this is a whole process. It'll play out, like Ross said, probably pretty quickly. And we probably won't get into a lot of these sort of specifics until the litigation where we will actually be looking at like, where did they split precincts? Where did they move uh, Hispanic people who vote and versus the Hispanic people who don't vote? And all of that will probably play out a little bit later on, but it's occurring right now. Yeah, you, you talk a little bit about separating race you know, dividing voters based on their race and dividing voters based on their politics and, and how that is such a complicated thing in Texas where, you know, demographics, um, you know, are not wholly determinative on, on how someone votes, but they are, um, you know, pretty closely linked. Um, and I think like one, you know, one thing we've seen, right, basically is the Supreme Court has declined to weigh in on partisan gerrymandering, right? They've basically kind of said that that's not our business. And we, you know, they had an opportunity to stop that from, you know, happening in too extreme of a sense a couple of years ago, and they did not take that opportunity. I don't think there's any reason to expect that they would change their mind on that anytime soon, given the way that the courts have shifted. Um, But, you know, Race is intertwined on that. And and, and as you said, it's hard to separate it out. But the politics here are really interesting. You know, Texas in the most recent election voted 52% for Trump, 46% for Joe Biden. You know, that's a pretty close margin, a 6% margin. That's closer than what Ohio was, um, a, a state that was, you know, until recently more generally viewed as kind of a swing state. But you look at the breakdown of the bodies in which the districts will be drawn. Um, and the Texas House is 55% Republican. The Texas Senate is 58% Republican. And the Texas congressional delegation is 64% Republican, already um, you know, disproportionately Republican compared to the electorate. And you know, I think one of the big questions here is, is um, is how far do Republicans want to go in terms of whether it's solidifying their majorities in those three bodies or or expanding those majorities when that comes with a certain amount of risk? I mean, Alexa, you've written about this in the past, how that really backfired in Dallas County, where they really tried to get a good number of Republican representatives in a, in a Democratic county in the Texas House. Uh, during the last redistricting cycle, and that really backfired on them. And now you basically have, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's two representatives who are Republicans in Dallas County. It's actually kind of disproportionately the, in the other direction um, in terms of representation there. And so that's something they're going to have to think about, James. I mean, uh, how, you know, quote unquote, much do they want to push this? How much do they want to, you know, uh, add Republican seats in Congress, which could help them, you know, flip the House nationally in, in, in 2022, but could possibly backfire for them, you know, further down the road. I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch as, as we see these maps come out. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, the things that I'm looking for is really like a couple of things. One is how much Republicans want to run up the score um, in terms of drawing more seats for themselves um, to secure their majorities in all of the bodies you just mentioned. The second is, how can they protect their incumbents, 
right? Um, that's obviously really important to them in order to keep the majority. Um, but sometimes it was, <laughs> sometimes it's contrary, or maybe the, the the incumbent isn't the right kind of fit for the majority. Maybe they want a l- someone a little bit more conservative, more in line with with what they're voting. So, you know, do they maybe draw those incumbent districts in a way that you know uh, makes it easier for somebody else in the district to to win that district? Um, so that's the second thing. And then third <laughs> thing I'm watching is really. Who do I want to mess around with in the minority party? And not just in the minority party, but to what I just said, like in the majority party, right? Um, I think in, in in the Texas House, you know, we still have that split from two years ago. The 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 ten lawmakers that were targeted, some of them, I think, like Travis Clardy and Trent Ashby, now are on the inside with the current speaker. But some of those other people, like you know Phil Stevenson, a couple of those other rural Republicans. They don't really tow that party line. And so that's what I'm talking about. How do you expand the majority while protecting your guys, your incumbents, or maybe tweaking it a little bit to get the right kind of Republican, as as Tom DeLay used to say, that's a throwback for, for Ross there, <laughs> the right kind of Republican uh, to win those seats. And then in places like Dallas County and some of those suburbs uh, above it, like Denton and Collin, um, you know, how can you protect those incumbents? And is it possible to protect the incumbents while messing around with some of those Democratic seats? So there's the John Turner open seat in HD 114. There's Anna Maria Ramos, who's the far, you know, she's a far left, one of the most progressive, one of the most liberal Democrats. And the Republican majority are not big fans of hers. So can you sort of mess around with her district and get a little bit more into Angie Chen Button's district, who is an incumbent that needs to be protected. Uh, Now Michelle Beckley is leaving, trying to run for Congress in Denton. Can you mess around with her district and, and, and maybe make it a little bit easier for the next person in Tan Parker's seat or the next person in, you know, whoever else's seat uh, to have an easier run. I think those are things um, that for me as a politics reporter, that's what I'm looking at. You know, who's going to throw the elbow <laughs> and and who who's saying, um, hey, uh, we we like you or, hey, we clearly don't like you. Well, that's a very interesting dynamic going into this, because, of course, we've had a very tense, you know, nine months or so in the Texas legislature leading up to this. I'll, I'll be curious to see whether there's any uh, repercussions for the Democrats who who broke quorum, you know, or or whether the folks who came back get any benefits from, from coming back and, and kind of, you know, giving leadership what they wanted and, and you know, allowing the, the special session to finally kind of continue in earnest. Right. And, uh, and one more thing I wanted to say about uh, what you're, what you're bringing up here, Matthew, is that, you know, yeah. Can there be political ramifications? And even for people like Anna Maria Ramos, who are, are some of the people that I think clearly might be targeted uh, just because she's not well liked by the Republican majority. But to Alexis point about what happened in Dallas County over the last decade, they tried to draw those districts in, in ways that they said were political. Right. But then we got into all the cracking and packing of, of racial groups, which I know Alexa and Ross are are uh, are ready to get into all the terms like HVAP and CVAP and cracking and packing. But when you start breaking up those, those communities, even if it's for political reasons, like Alexa was alluding to, you start breaking up those communities 
And then you have what Alexa was talking about. You have the the legal challenges on on terms of like racial gerrymandering. So that's also going to be interesting. Yeah, and, and those those voters have to go somewhere, right? And in Dallas County again is a very good example because those two state house members who are in that Dallas County delegation that are Republican have very thin margins already. There's not a lot of room for error. And so, you know, some of this, I think you have to make a decision of, do you want to play the politics in terms of internal politics and who are you mad at and who are you not? And how much of it is it just wanting to protect, you know, your people who are already there and your majority? Ross, how much do you think that kind of pettiness that like the speaker or whoever else is mad at member X comes into play when they're, when they're drawing those um, districts? I think it comes into play. I mean, you know, these guys are, you know, they were raised in schoolyards just like the rest of us. And, you know, if they're mad at somebody as they are right now, after the, after the walkouts this summer, you know, um, I think we walk into one of the most divisive things the legislature does already divided. It's not like we're going to play this off of really great pre-existing relationships. We had a summer of strife and the Democrats and Republicans are already mad at each other. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, you know, some of the inter-party dynamics like this. You know, the great example is in the state Senate, where Kel Seliger from Amarillo is a Republican. He's in a um, underpopulated district. And he's got a lieutenant governor who's not exactly his best friend. And so, you you know, you get this situation where that district... Uh, Charles Perry's district from Lubbock, Don Buckingham's district, you know, which goes from Abilene down to Lake Travis. Um, all of those districts are underpopulated. And, you know, you want to be in good stead with everybody else as that starts because your district's already in trouble. I think, you know, somebody like Kel Seliger is going to have to decide, do I want to stay? How important is it for Amarillo to have its own district? And what are our political chances? It's even harder in the House. There's more West Texas seats. They're similarly underpopulated. And somebody's going to have to either stand up and say, I'm not coming back. You guys can cannibalize my district. Or they're going to have a fight of some kind. Sometimes it's sometimes, you know, if if you get into one of those, those bottlenecks, then you get to the next question, which is, which one of these guys do I hate the most? <laughs> You know, and, and and the pettiness usually isn't on the front. It's usually, you know, in the decision of something's got to give here. And I like um, you and you and you, but that guy over there, not so much. He, yeah, he didn't he didn't go along with me and at this point or so. I mean, Alexa, part of the, the challenge here is, is it's not just a state that has trended in the way it's voted a little bit more to the middle or, or in the Democrats direction, although Republicans are still, of course, winning elections here. It's also where that growth has happened. Right. It's the the cities in particular, you know, Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Fort Worth. But it's also the suburbs where things are have really been changing quickly in terms of the politics. And that just adds another kind of complicating factor here, right, in terms of of, of, of what the Republicans' options are. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the data that lawmakers are looking at and trying to figure out what to do with, you see a Texas that is growing away from the Republican Party. You know, you can obviously argue about places like the border, where maybe some of the politics worked out for them in, in sort of this unusual 2020 
um, election for them. But in reality, you see growth in the urban areas. The fastest growth is in the suburbs that have either already followed urbans into the Democratic Party or have been sort of flirting with battleground status. Um, That's where you have the fastest growth. But in terms of numeric numbers, which we ultimately are looking are, are what matter for something like redistricting, right? You know, I, I was just at this math recently, and 44% of the state's 4 million new residents live just in the state's five big counties, four of which are already solidly Democratic, right? So that's the reality that Republicans are against. I think the, the thing that they have working for them, there are two things. One is that when you're drawing districts, you're both looking at total population to make them equal in size, but you're also looking at voting age population, right, and and eligible voters, which is an even smaller number because it's only people who are citizens. And that number, even though it is following the same trends that the state as a whole is following, it's still a bit wider than the state as a whole, right? So they still have a little bit of room there depending on, obviously that depends on what area of, of Texas you're in. The other thing they have going for them is that they are no longer under preclearance. I can't believe it's taken us this long to talk about preclearance. But up up until 2013, Texas had to get its maps approved by the federal government, whether that was a DOJ or a DC court, um, to ensure they didn't pull back on representation for voters of color. So you at least had to keep where you were at in the last decade. Obviously, with growth, where you were at isn't necessarily um, enough. But they no longer have to do that, right? So they can they can basically use the numbers to their partisan advantage um, and only have to defend them later in court. And in courts that now have no real power to pull back on how creative they might get for political purposes, as long as they don't find discrimination against voters of color. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty, I think it's a complicated map though, right? Like if you look at what the growth was, 95% of it is among people of color. Uh, there are the Asian population, which is a, really a tiny percentage of the overall population in the state, grew by more people than the white population in the entire state, right? And I mean, when you think about that, it, it, it comes with really big, decisions for Republicans when you start drawing these districts. You know, we've talked a lot about Dallas County, but Dallas County had negative white population growth, right? And so these are the problem areas where Republicans are going to have to figure out how do we balance these numbers to where we still have districts that are going to vote Republican, but meet all these other criteria that we have to think about with a a population that doesn't really help them. To add on to that, I would, I would, you know, Alexa uh, referred to this, but there's a difference between the population and the voting population. And, you know, propensity to vote is going to play into this. And I think, you know, we've talked about this in other places um, and a little bit here, but, you know, you, all you have to have in a district to make it um, perform under the parts of the law that are designed against racial and ethnic discrimination is make sure you have population like that grouped correctly. You don't have to have voters grouped correctly. You know, there was a famous case in uh, the 23rd Congressional District where they took out voting Hispanics that made it a Democratic district and replaced them with roughly the same number of non-voting Hispanics. So on a chart, it looked the same. On a demographic chart, it looked the same, but it voted 
uh, red instead of blue. It was a completely different district. And I think, you know, given the state of the technology in politics right now, where you can virtually get software to go house by house and say, you can't quite divide it on the queen size mattress and divide she and him, but you can divide house from house and just go down the street and say, this one's a Republican house. This one's a Democratic house. This one, we're not sure. And with that kind of software and with the redistricting, the census data that you've got, you can really do a lot to manipulate the differences between the population and the voting population. And I think, you know, that's one of the places where a lot of the real work and a lot of the real fight is going to be litigation fight. I mean, is going to be in this redistricting cycle. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that you talk about that kind of non-voting population. You're talking about, uh, of course, children who are not old enough to vote. You're talking about immigrants, um, documented and un- undocumented. And, and then, of course, there's also just areas that have lower turnout than other areas in, in terms of people uh, voting as well. So there's kind of there's definitely a large population that you're able to deal with. I mean, one area that I think that that kind of contrast is particularly pronounced is at the S- SBOE State Board of Education, which I know doesn't get the same level of attention. But we're talking about, you know, um, SBOE districts that Beto O'Rourke won a majority of in in 2018. And, and um, of course, Republicans will be controlling this process. I'm sure they will be interested in maintaining Republican control of this process. But we're also talking about a board that is overseeing, you know, how children in Texas are educated. And the uh, school children in Texas right now only are only 27% white. And, and, and so that contrast, of course, you know, that is not representative representative of the voting population, but it's representing the population that is most affected by the decisions being made by that board. So, I mean, it's just kind of a a fascinating contrast there. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, how this works, the tools at Republicans' Republicans disposal, and, and also the legal fights that will follow. But first, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Visit TACC.org. And Friends of the Alamo. Keep history alive to ensure that future generations remember the Alamo. Join Friends of the Alamo today at thealamo.org. All right. Okay, Alexa, I promise we will talk about the lawsuits soon. But first, can you give us a quick rundown of what the Republicans can do, right? I mean, uh, knowing that these demographic forces are working against them, knowing that trends are maybe heading in the other direction, how can they draw maps that kind of preserve their dominance in the state? So the the kind of building blocks of gerrymandering are in what's called cracking and packing. Um, you can do one or the other, or you can often do both of them simultaneously. Um, and I think we're probably going to see a lot of simultaneous um, to get this map to a point where it gives Republicans the majority that they want. But basically what you do is if you are packing, for example, if you have a county where you have to draw three districts and you want to diminish the influence 
of, say, Democrats in those three districts, what you can do is you can pack them all into one county, right? Run the numbers there, put as many of them there, so that then you can just take the balance of that population and basically crack them into the two other districts where they would never be in a majority. Um, this is, you know, basically, as we've said, it's okay to do on partisan terms, but what lawmakers have often run into is that they end up packing and cracking communities predominantly on the basis of race, which is illegal. Um, and they have been found to do that intentionally because you, and, and it's legal because you are actively working to undermine the power of those votes, right? So that's that's one of the main things that that you'll see. You know, you'll see things like what Ross mentioned from Congressional District 23, where you can basically um, split. I mean, you're, you're technically not supposed to, but we saw last time is a lot of split precincts, not for population purposes, but because you that way you can get voting Hispanics and non-voting Hispanics and sort of switch them out and kind of surgically go through the border of a district to be able to get that population that you need. And so those are sort of the building blocks, right? Those obviously exist at the same time as you are trying to figure out what to do with opportunity districts, right? These are districts where uh, members of a specific uh, racial group, so let's say Hispanics, where they are in the majority of eligible voters, right? So we're talking about citizens of voting age population. And, And basically they have to be in that majority because that's the only way that they can overcome white the white vote because white voters technically are usually vote in a block. And so they can overcome the preferred candidate of Hispanics. And so all of these things play out at the same time. You have opportunity districts that already exist in the maps that you can assure people will be challenging if if they if Republicans try to pull down those numbers, even if they do get creative the way they did with CD23, you'll have people lobbying for more opportunity districts based on that population growth that is mostly Hispanic. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's it's just a really complex process to sort of really quickly explain because there are all these sort of factors that have to go into it. There are all these sort of overlays in terms of the data and the partisan affiliation. Um, But basically expect to hear the terms cracking and packing very, very, very often in the next few weeks. Yeah. And the end result that you see, you know, with packing, you, you see what a district that is, you know, overwhelmingly Democrat, right. Where, um, uh, you know, members winning 80% of the vote or something like that. And, and through the cracking, you see kind of those districts, kind of what you see in Austin right now, where, uh, you know, there are districts that kind of spread out into rural Republican-dominated Texas, but they have these kind of arms that reach into Democratic Travis County um, but and, and pull some of those voters and, and, and dilute them, but not to the extent that it kind of flips the district, you know, adds, adds so many of them that they then become democratic districts. And so, yeah. And you also, I mean, you also have other complications. Like if you're, if you're looking at the state house map specifically, there's also something called the county line rule, which basically says that if a county has enough population to make up one district, it has to be contained in that county. Obviously when you're talking about counties like Harris County and Dallas County, you're talking about way, way more than one district, right? Harris County has, I believe, 24 house districts just contained within the county. But then you you start getting into 
positions where how do you how do you manipulate the numbers in that sort of contained geographic area to your benefit? Are there places where you justify breaking the county line rule? Uh, you know, there are arguments about the fact that the county line rule has to yield to federal law and federal protections like for voters of color. I, I mean, it just sort of becomes a, a legal morass. And it's, it's it, despite how sort of geographically contained those counties may be, it's, it can be sort of pretty messy in the underlining data. So then the other thing, of course, is that this has to stand up to legal scrutiny. Alexa, you already mentioned that preclearance is no longer an option that has been kind of stripped from the Voting Rights Act by the court. But there is you can basically count on there being lawsuits. There are already some lawsuits, you know, trying to stop them from going through this process. We'll see whether that works, whether that happens. But then we will have the, you know, I mean, Alexa, you were writing about cases related to the 2011 redistricting up until what? a year or two ago. I mean, this is... This, I mean, technically, the litigation is still going because they're fighting over attorney's fees. So it's it's basically a decade into the litigation. Exactly, exactly. So, but I mean, there is a big difference here. There, There is a big difference, you know, I think what you could call a Trump effect on the federal federal judiciary, you know, and, and we look at what happened with the this abortion law that we've talked about in past shows and how you know, this law was written, you know, with the precedent of, of Roe v. Wade. And a lot of people saw that, you know, the, the six weeks abortion ban is being kind of doomed because of that precedent. But we have learned that we have a much more conservative Supreme Court and, and a question of, you know, will these same rules still apply as these um, or, or will they be interpreted in different ways? as this this kind of round of redistricting comes along compared to the last one. I mean, how much worry do you think there is among the people preparing for these lawsuits, the people who are who are going to fight Republicans on this process, that kind of the cards are going to be a little bit more stacked against them this time around? I mean, I think we have to acknowledge what the state got away with in the last decade. And I use the term got away with because it was a specific strategy that they use. And, and that was that they passed these maps in 2011 because preclearance was still in effect. They couldn't go into effect. Uh, the, the DC court found that there was more intentional discrimination in the map than they, they had space or needed to address. So those maps were held up in the courts. Eventually you have to have a primary. So the court with the input of the state and the lawmakers drew this sort of temporary map in which to hold those elections and basically said, this isn't, this doesn't mean we've resolved every issue. We could still change this map if we find that there are legal issues in it. What the state did then though, when it came back in 2013, is that one uh, attorney general named Greg Abbott advise lawmakers to basically adopt those court maps, right? Adopt them because, as he wrote in a letter to former Speaker Joe Strauss, he said that will insulate the state from more litigation because they're essentially adopting what the court already signed off on. Then preclearance was shot down. And so those maps went into effect and the litigation played out with those maps already in place, right? Maps that, while they had been corrected by the courts in some areas, still needed some work or could still have some work done in in other areas. And so this all went through the courts for for many, many years. And essentially, the Supreme Court eventually said, you're good to go, right? The, The lawmakers could not have intentionally discriminated by adopting the court's maps. 
There's nothing left to be remedied. Goodbye. And so those are the maps that we have today. And as we go into this cycle, you know, that the, the strategy worked and they have the strategy that's already been signed off on by the courts, even before the courts were filled with judges appointed by Donald Trump, who were seen to be as more conservative, right? Like, I know that's like a very, very long explanation to where we got here, but I think it's really important to think about the fact that lawmakers were found to have intentionally discriminated in these original maps, but because they adopted the maps that the state approved for these elections, they were never held accountable for that. They, were, they, they could basically not touch them for their actions. And the state very often argued, you know, there's sort of a no harm, no foul here because those maps never went into effect, even though they didn't go into effect because a court found them to be intentionally discriminatory, right? Like, and so I think that as we approach this cycle, I don't think it's overstating that. I, I don't think we can overstate the fact that that Republicans sort of have the legal landscape to their benefit, right? You're still going to have groups that are going to fight them. There is still Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. They can still push for changes through these maps by if they can convince the courts by pointing to vote dilution in places where the Hispanic vote is undermined or where the Black vote is undermined, or rather where Black communities are undermined and. Hispanic communities are undermined. Um, so there are still avenues to do that, but the, the legal landscape is definitely on the Republican side. If I could just add in also that, I mean, this is what this is, a, the, the the whole summer has been about, right? I mean, it's got to be said that basically what the, <laughs> what the state did, as Alexis so eloquently put it, is they put into effect a, what was supposed to be a temporary map that they were supposed to fix further. Uh, to remedy a lot of the discriminatory effect that it had. And they just put that in place and like baked it in. And and the Supreme Court then, and, and then after the th- three judge panel said, yeah, there's discriminatory effect and there's also discriminatory intent in several of these places. After a three judge panel with, with Republican appointed judges on it said that these things had happened, the Supreme Court said, no, actually, the state legislature did its job by putting in this temporary map, and you guys are good to go. And that was before that was before uh, before we had this six three ultra majority or super. I guess it's not a super majority, but it's, it's definitely a bigger majority than it previously had. And I mean, I think it's got to be said it's not just fully a Trump effect. You know, this really does start with with the Chief Justice John Roberts, who's fought basically his entire legal career um, on these issues. Um, and you know, Shelby versus Holder, it's it's one of the one of the landmark cases of the Roberts Court, and it's it's diluted uh, severely the Voting Rights Act. And that's sort of what this whole fight this summer was about with the House Democrats leaving and breaking quorum and stuff. They wanted to reinstate protections in the Federal Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court over the last decade has has done away with. Um, And so, you know, I think I agree with Alexa in, in the answer to your question that if you're a an attorney or a civil rights organization that's preparing to fight these maps and potential uh, negative effects for people of color in court, you're not going into it with a very optimistic look. Ba- basically, it's got to be a slam dunk case uh, for for you to for you to all out win. And with the amount of 
technology that there is now and with the amount that of protections that courts across the country have put in, basically allowing people to politically gerrymander, gerrymander, just not racially gerrymander, you know, the odds are, are definitely not in their favor. Right. Well, um, this, I suspect we'll be talking about this uh, in TripCast for months, if not years to come. So uh, thank you guys for that introduction. Uh, uh, very helpful. And, and uh, <laughs> it will be, it'll be exciting and interesting to see kind of where we go from here. Um, that kind of wraps us up for this week. Uh, thank you to Ross, Alexa, James, and James for joining us. Thank you to our producer, Michael Ray. And thank you to our sponsors, Raptor Technologies, PepsiCo, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, and Friends of the Alamo. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?